parties saw the value of cooperating before Paris. Um, so if there's no agreement here, uh, the countries will continue uh, ex experimenting and, and exploring how to do deliver on their NDCs better together. Um, and But that would be extremely unfortunate. And the business community, the investors, the governments to engage on this would be clearly benefit from clear rules so that we can actually deploy the billions that are, that are expected through climate finance. Negotiators here in Glasgow are wrapping up the first week of talks for rules on cross-border cooperation under Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement, cooperation that includes international transfers of carbon credits. It's a complicated and contentious part of the agreement, but it's also core to accelerating reductions deeper in the future, which is what these talks are all about. One reason people have trouble understanding Article 6 is because they often look at it in isolation, as if carbon markets are something that stand alone, or worse, as a substitute for reducing emissions instead of what they should be, which is a tool for reducing emissions deeper. The carbon credit cannot be used to say that, okay, I've met my reduction target by surrendering carbon credits. You cannot do that. Instead, the role of the carbon credit is to say, I have financed emission reductions somewhere else. That's Maria Carvalho, head of public affairs at South Pole Climate Solutions. On Tuesday, I sat down with her and Frederick Agnon Lebrun, who is South Pole's business director, to get a handle on Article 6. We ended up having a crystal clear, detailed discussion on how Article 6 works, how it fits into the whole net zero movement, and how a new definition of carbon neutral is emerging, which is critical if we're to make sure these markets are delivering value and not just making bad companies look good. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forest, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we look at it from the perspective of carbon markets under the Paris Climate Agreement, specifically Article 6, which is not only contentious but complicated. Today's guests, Maria Carvalho and Frederick Agnon Lebrun, do a great job breaking it down for us in ways that are simple and concise. I sat down with them on Tuesday as these talks were just getting started, but I've been too busy to finish this piece until today. Apologies to both of them if they're listening. Now, if I were able to concentrate just on the show, I'd have gotten this out Tuesday night and I'd have fleshed it out with a lot of explanatory material as well. 
you'd have an earlier and more entertaining show. But I'm not able to concentrate on the show because I don't have enough sponsors. I would like to thank Ecosystem Marketplace, by the way, for asking me to help out with coverage here in Glasgow, because that's what makes it possible for me to even be here. You can help me deliver more and better episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Once again, that's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode, but with a monthly cap. As I mentioned, we sat down on Tuesday, but the issues that Fred and Maria identify are still in play and will be long after the talks are done. I think we've got an episode for the ages here, and I started out by asking Fred where negotiations stood on Tuesday, which, again, isn't much different from where they are now. We're hoping to resolve as many technical issues as possible by a Saturday and very clearly identifying the issues that remain uh, open for a political decision, which will be the heart of the negotiations next week at the ministerial level. Okay, let's break this down a little bit because this is confusing to people who are new to it. In this week, you've got SUBSTA, which is a subsidiary body for science and technological advice, and their, their job is to sort out all these little technical issues and then to create a text that still has some open questions that can only be answered by their bosses. And the bosses come in next week, and these are the environment ministers, and they'll take it to the next level. What are the technical issues that they're working on right now? And do you want to comment on what you think will be the unresolved issues that get passed up to the cop? Yeah, so the job of the negotiators this week is indeed to highlight the, very clearly the options for ministers so that they can actually really understand the trade-offs and very clearly understands, understand each of the parties' positions so that they can start the political negotiations and come to an outcome in two weeks, hopefully. There are three big issues, I would say, that remain outstanding that are likely going to go to a ministerial next week. The first one is around accounting. So we're in a new world now with the Paris Agreement. We're no longer under uh, the Kyoto Protocol, obviously, that had uh, the world divided into two groups of countries, those with targets, those without targets or commitments. In the Paris Agreement, all countries have uh, pledged a, some sort of mitigation uh, target in the NDCs. And that means that we need to be extremely careful that the emission reductions used under Article 6 are not used twice, are not double counted. And this is where the complexities really come in, the vast diversity of NDCs that are on the table. Countries were free to develop their own targets, structure the NDCs the way they wanted. And that uh, has created a, a real challenge for, for accounting for the um, these NDCs and the transfers, the international transfers. So uh, accounting is the first one. We need to, to really get this right. And I would think that the accounting would be one that gets, is expected to be solved this week, but you're saying that's something that will likely be passed up to the COP. Some aspects of it might be passed up, not, not after the COP, but to a political level, or perhaps be put in a work program for parties to continue working on it at a technical level over the next year, say for a decision next year. And one of those issues is uh, potential exemptions on the corresponding adjustment for some types of, of projects that reduce emissions, for example, projects that are outside the scope of countries and DC. So that, that is one of the, one example of a hard issue to, and, and very divisive issue among parties. Maybe you can flesh out, unpack this corresponding adjustment a bit. What is it, you know, I understand, I have a visual in my head of what it means, but it can be a little bit confusing. Yeah, so 
Whenever a, an investment is made in a mitigation project or a mitigation program, be it renewable energy, biogas, capture and flaring, etc., the emission reductions appear in the uh, greenhouse gas inventory of the country and the greenhouse gas accounting for the NDC. So when a country looks at, at where it's going towards its target, it will see that it is making progress. But if that project actually generates carbon credits that are traded internationally for another country to use towards its NDC, then it, it would be double counting for the host country to also use it towards its NDC. So we need to make sure that there are rules to track the transfers so that civil society and all parties have a very clear view of uh, what's been transferred, who has actually used the, the emission reduction for, for the NDC, whether it's the host country as it shows up in the inventory or if it's the buying country as a, a type of offset to, to meet its NDC. And that's really important in terms of, because both every country in the world as part of their NDC or Paris Agreement obligations are meant to actually submit their inventories to the Secretariat for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So UNFCC for those who are unfamiliar with the acronyms, but the key thing there is that so that the UNFCC can actually track global progress to the Paris target. And so that means every country has to submit in that way. And that's why in compliance markets, it's very important to track. Otherwise you could, if both the host country and the uh, country that used it for their targets, both showed that they had the same target in their inventories, it would lead to an overestimation of emission reductions. And that's the key thing here, and the, that's the key risk they're trying to do, not just in terms of being able to track, but then to make sure that tracking does not lead to an overestimation, and what we end up doing is hitting climate change a lot quicker. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think there, there's a good uh, concrete example maybe we could give. I, I, I know the one that Charlotte Streck had written in Ecosystem Marketplace was nice. She used the example of, let, let's say you're an automaker in Germany, and you want to offset your industrial emissions, you could do so by, say, buying offsets from a reforestation project in, you know, Burkina Faso or whatever. And um, if it's a compliance offset, then what happens is that Burkina Faso or Namibia or whatever country it's in, they would then transfer the emission reduction from their national inventory over to Germany so that both countries, nobody's double counting. But if it's a voluntary offset, it's a whole different thing. Because here the German company is using it for PR purposes or to say, okay, we have reduced our own impact, but they're not saying it's, it affects Germany's inventory, right? So I think it's a key idea of what a carbon credit is used in either a compliance or voluntary way. So in a compliance way, if the automaker is under a German policy that is very clear that they are requiring that automaker to reduce emissions to a target. And if the German automaker doesn't meet that target, it is using the carbon credit to meet a compliance obligation, saying like, I've, I've overshot by 100 tons, I need to buy those 100 tons. And ultimately, those 100 tons will show up in Germany's national inventory. So here, the carbon credit is used to meet a target. While when it's used in the voluntary market, and this is actually something that's incredibly important. So last week we had the science-based targets initiative, which set out the net zero standard. And that was very, science-based targets initiative has been very clear. Also, a accounting framework for companies in a voluntary way to say this is the best practice for how you do accounting for your emissions, but also how you use carbon credits. In both cases, the rule is you cannot use carbon credits toward your corporate reduction target. 
And that makes it different to how carbon credits are used in compliance, because when you say that you cannot, companies then have to disclose, here's my target, these are my actual emissions, even if I've overshot, I have to be transparent that I've overshot. No one's holding you to that overshoot, aside from yourself and civil society, because it's a voluntary action. But the role of the carbon credit is to show, it, it, it cannot be used to say that, okay, I've met my reduction target by surrendering carbon credits. You cannot do that. Instead, the role of the carbon credit is to say, I have financed emission reductions somewhere else. And so that separation is very key. It is not used to a target, but it shows a financial claim. So what you're doing is saying, I'm financing somewhere else, and it's clear in that separation that finance goes to the host country. So it's not, their purpose is different, even if the mechanism is the same of measuring emission right. reductions. In fact, they, they could, in the, in the example of the German car maker, they could say, we help Namibia achieve exactly. its... And in, in corporate claims, one of our best advice to them is to make that clear that what you're doing is financing emission reductions in the place. So it really goes back into being transparent about, here's my target, here's my actual progress to meeting targets by showing your emissions, and then here is how many carbon credits I've surrendered. And the beauty about carbon credits, it allows you to substantiate how much your financing has gone towards your carbon footprint. So if I've, again, emitted, let's say, a million and I've only surrendered 500,000, you can say I've only financed the equivalent of 50% of my carbon footprint. And so that, again, it goes into transparency that you can really show to the significance of your finance from a volume to volume basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and so the, are, you, are you saying that com companies shouldn't really use the term carbon neutral anymore in the voluntary market? Or? No, I think they should be very clear. And this is actually, because carbon neutrality in the past has been, the idea has been, here are my emissions and I've compensated by buying carbon credits to the equivalent amount. And what we're clear is that shouldn't be the case. You should only go to that level if for the emissions that you could not avoid. So how do we determine that is by repurposing what climate neutral is. So this is what the ISO working group on carbon neutrality is doing. So the International Standard Organization, which develops that, um, is basically saying that in order for you to claim carbon neutrality, you have to set targets aligned to science. You have to reduce your, have a reduction plan that reflects those efforts. And then you should finance emission reductions to the full equivalent to your carbon footprint. And so that creates a much more comprehensive tandem between your own efforts to reduce your emissions for everything that you could avoid, not just in the short term, but in the long term. But then what you're then compensating for or financing emission reductions is for everything else. And so that again allows for that transparency of what it means to be carbon neutral. It cannot just be 100% compensation without any efforts towards reduction. And that's, I think the interesting thing is that that's always been the intent, but always uh, spelled out that way. You know, we've done an, some, we did analysis back in 2016 at Ecosystem Marketplace, and we found that the companies that purchased offsets tended to also be the ones, they tended to be doing it, but there was always the, the chance that they couldn't. I mean, there's always this, it, it's, you're basically, you have to do it right to have this claim now. Okay. Okay. Is, now, is that formally part of the net zero? Is it your opinion? Is it your kind of codification or is this a... Yeah, so there's two things. One, we know officially when it, for the term carbon neutrality, there is a working group by the eyes. There's also what we call label providers. So South Pole has a climate neutral label and we have the exact same requirements of this. So targets aligned to science, reduction plan, and then compensate for your full carbon footprint. CROA, which is the International Carbon Reduction and Offset Alliance, 
all the label providers there have also aligned on the definition that climate neutrality has to be as I've described <laughs> as I've described I, but I for the sake of it but they've all aligned on that and it should be that everyone has to align on that while we wait for the ISO to come out but also the science-based targets initiative who have set out the net zero standard they haven't yet put out their guidance on that but there's they are also clear the way they talk about it is beyond value chain mitigation which is what it means to be net zero is to set a net zero target in which by that year you should have reduced 90% of your emissions below a baseline here. I know we're getting very technical, but it's the idea that it's an importance that you actually are reducing your emissions and you have a long-term target year plan. And that target year has to be by 2050 at the latest or before. And then you set interim targets on the way to that net zero year. It has to cover all your emissions. So everything from your facility, which is scope one, everything emissions associated with your consumption of electricity and heat, that's scope two. And scope three is everything else, everything from your suppliers to your pension fund to your flights. So they're very clear that you have to cover all the emissions to have a cognizance of that in your accounting and you have to actually take reduction plans towards that with various timelines but that's the idea and then then and what is very i was very heartened to see is they're also clear that if you were to just reduce it's still not enough because our global carbon budget is depleting very rapidly and so in order to stay that you need to actually invest into finance mitigation activities that you yourself could not avoid. So then they go into, it could be going through the carbon credit mechanism, you could also do something that finances projects. And so at least with the carbon credit mechanism, there's a clear third party governance system through carbon standards who are very clear about their principles, they're very clear about the methodologies and procedures, they have independent auditors, and so that you know what the impact will be of the carbon credit. I would love to see what their safeguards are on ensuring that same level of impact financing on financial contributions, but it's very encouraging that they've recognized please do be ambitious on your own reductions, but we have a depleting global carbon budget, so it's very important to finance beyond value chain mitigation. Going back to Article 6, we talked about the, the accounting and, and the issues on accounting that will be passed up to the next level. So maybe we can pick that thread up again. What elements of accounting are being worked out this week and what will be passed up? to the ministers next week. Yeah. The work on accounting was quite advanced mm -hmm. in Madrid. And uh, some of the issues were, for example, how to deal with the fact that many NDCs, many countries have set NDCs that have a single year target. Whereas the trading of ITMOs would actually occur, could occur over the whole the whole period, NDC period. And then, so how do you actually reconcile the trading over a period against a single year target was the challenge. And approaches have been laid out in the draft text from Madrid. And there was some clarity on that. Some issues are coming up again now in terms of of the, the timing of the adjustment. So when you sell, is it when you create the, when you issue the, the carbon credit? Is it when you actually transfer it? How do you deal with this, the sequencing of all these di different steps is one of the thing that some parties want to clarify here, others want to put that in a work program for, for later, for instance. The other one that I had mentioned is how to uh, deal with the fact that some of the projects will be outside the scope of some of the uh, developing country NDCs that do not cover the whole of the economy. Uh, if a project is outside the scope, then some say there's no need for uh, 
the country to adjust the NDC inventory, emission inventory, because it's outside. But that uh, creates a perverse incentive for that country to actually extend the scope of its NDC as it is required under Article 4 of the Paris Agreement. In a way, imposing a corresponding adjustment for activities that are outside the scope contradicts what is expected of countries in the Paris Agreement, that, that they would expand the scope and deepen the ambition of their NDCs. Because if you're getting carbon finance for a project outside the, uh, the NDC, then there's little incentive to actually expand the scope. So there negotiations on figuring out how to deal with this specific issue and the different views of parties on this. Yeah, and there are, and countries have done that too. Fred and I have worked with different countries and what has always struck me is that in this discussion on raising your ambition, a lot of times, if you were to think about from a government's point of view, especially developing countries, figuring out how to reduce emissions, what is it going to cost? So obviously it's, I'm not going to do this if it compromises my economic development. But the key thing we've been saying is that your economic development could be compromised because of climate change, but also you can leapfrog over a very carbon intensive version of that, but they'll still come back into, but that's very expensive. And so what is really helpful and what I've been hearted in seeing in the latest text of negotiations around Article 6 is that they've included technical capacity building on market-based mechanisms, which I hope will then include helping countries with their NDC in identifying what are the mitigation options that are available to them, what are the costs of those mitigation options, what can they do themselves so that it can actually be covered under their NDC, and what is very clearly outside domestic capacity, and what are the either international climate finance mechanisms that can help them reach a more ambitious target or what could be outside of scope and could then be financed through the international carbon markets. Because the key thing that I've always come out with when I speak to gov governments is that they don't want to compromise the economic development, but you can actually show them how there wouldn't be that compromise if you could just show them what are the options available and what the cost would be. This represents a, a major paradigm shift compared to what was happening under the, C the CDM in the Kyoto Protocol. Those countries didn't have a target and would could trade without thinking the developing <laughs> much about countries. it. The developing yeah. countries, yeah. indeed. And in the voluntary market over the last years, it, it's the same thing. Now, under Article 6, for those for it most to be used towards another country's NDC, a, a country needs to lay out what the plan is for implementing its NDC and, and get reassurance, communicate to citizens about that so that they can be super clear that what they're doing under Article 6 is actually beyond the NDC, as Maria was explaining. So there's a lot of capacity building going into how to use market-based mechanisms, how to use Article 6, and we're doing a lot of that. But the, it has to go hand-in-hand hand with supporting these countries in costing the NDC, essentially, so that there is that clarity. And then the Article 6 can be used with a very clear strategic intent right, of securing mm -hmm. financing for things that, that go beyond yeah. they want to do in the NDC. And that's what this, uh, are you guys following the, um, the Voluntary Carbon Market integrity Global Dialogue? No, not the oh, Integrity the Initiative. Global Dialogue? Yeah, yeah. And, and the Integrity Initiative is more on the what the buyers do with their offices. But the Global Dialogue is interesting because that's what they're saying too, is that governments can sit down and say, okay, this is where we can harness these markets and accelerate things. It, have you been following that? Yes. Okay. Are you involved in that? or are you? Uh, I mean, in terms of we provide our responses to mm -hmm. the consultations, but we also speak to a lot of the organizations involved with the VCM Global Dialogue. But I've been hardened in seeing that there is such a focus on host countries. Interestingly, just the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative, I was also happy that they brought the host country perspective involved. Too. So both types of 
initiatives recognize that host countries have been left out of a discussion around the voluntary carbon market and how can we provide that kind of understanding for them that carbon markets can channel finance and really understand which part of it can go towards their own domestic carbon markets or their own domestic systems and how do you set that up versus how much of that goes beyond their NDC and can really then ensure that carbon finance, international carbon finance, goes towards raising the types of actions that can be done. And a lot of host countries, either the key things they don't know is that one, these projects exist in their country, they are worried that they are missing out on the financing involved uh, with it, and but then also to ensure that they suddenly don't get caught up with being asked to do a corresponding adjustment when that wasn't clear to them that they were going to do that. So it's really important to bring out that perspective of how do you actually operationalize this in a world that we're hopefully by, I would say, the optimistic thing would be in 10 years, but every single emission in the world was actually tracked under a compliance market. So that's optimistic for 10 years. Hopefully by 2050, that's not the case. But how do you get them into a place where, like I said before, a good analogy is thinking about how do you set up and a, a way in which you could track every currency unit in the world and an international market and when it flows between countries and what's generated in your country. You need to be able to track that and you need to get host countries to be aware of what this could mean with regards to their own tracking and also to be clear of what kind of policies could actually detract from that investments and what kind of policies enhance, not just policies but institutions that need to be in place to reduce those transaction costs, but still ensures that the host country benefits from that, both from an economic point of view, but also from a climate point of view. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so, it's it's interesting. I remember when, in Paris, how many developing countries didn't know about the corresponding adjustment. Like, they didn't, you know, they, they were like, oh, we're going to get this money, and we're going to be able to finance our NDCs with these markets, and then, oh, we have, we have to transfer something, we have to give it up. Oh, no, that changes everything. You know, yeah. it's uh, yeah. the, the awareness is much greater than it was in Paris. Obviously yeah, yeah. Now a lot of countries have started uh, developing implementation plans for the NDCs. Have started costing the NDC and and have started thinking through strategically what it means to use Article Six. But we still we still have a long way to go for all parties around the. And actually, going back into practice, a lot of times, and what has been some of the difficulties in this is is that you have the two technical experts here. And then they have to go back to their home countries. And to do this, they have to coordinate with every sector. Like they have to figure out a way to do that. And if they change, so if whatever reason they get reshuffled in the ministries, in some countries in the world that happens, then yeah. you lose that technical expertise. So really ensuring that it's embedded in the country and the institutional processes in place are very important after negotiations. It's been so interesting to watch the rotation, the rotating negotiators. Some countries have the same people for 15 years and then some people it's like a new teammate each year and they they don't know anything and it, it hurts these countries too it, it, it does indeed yeah yeah and what, what i've seen uh, however that, that i thought was quite interesting is to have new people with little experience in the in the old cdm the cdm market or the old markets come with a, a fresh view of how to use article 6 so that which has is been yeah. refreshing actually which is also good yeah because exactly. we need to yeah we need to shake things up a bit exactly yeah indeed and going going back to article 6 we we've got accounting um, have we wrapped that one up yet or uh, is there more to it I would think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what the, are, what the, are the, the second the second issue I would highlight is um, the the what's called the share of proceeds. Um, yeah. So on, under Article Six Four, um, <laughs> it is expected and it is in the the Paris Agreement text that a, a levy would be uh, 
taken on any transactions of Article 6.4. And 6.4 uh, is the one where credits. it's a centralized... Uh, so st Article 6.4 is a centralized uh, yeah. mechanism governed uh, by the UN uh, with a supervisory body to be to be set up, to be established, and with a process uh, to be defined and, and run by the UN for uh, emission reductions to be uh, recognized and, and certified uh, and become what is called 6.4 uh, units, for lack of a, a mm -hmm. better name. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when those units get, get transferred, it's... Um, it's been agreed that a percentage of those units would be um, put in, put aside, effectively, sold onto the market to generate funds for uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation for developing countries. Mm -hmm. This is very similar to the system that existed under the CDM, right. with a share of proceeds of two percent of CERs that were going to for which the proceeds were going to the, the adaptation fund, right? But the adaptation fund is under the Kyoto Protocol. All of that was was Kyoto. Some developing countries uh, have been very uh, disappointed, obviously, with the uh, the fact that the developed countries have not met their uh, climate finance pledge of uh, mobilizing 100 billion a year. So that gives them arguments for actually asking for greater a greater percentage of these un uh, units to be put aside for climate adaptation. Um, and uh, the other issue is whether this share of proceeds should also apply to transactions under Article 6.2. Mm -hmm. It was decided that this was, would not be the case in Paris, but this is an issue that's been put back on the table over the last uh, three years, the last two cups, um, and it's still a very contentious, uh, contentious issue. And that is not an issue that can be dealt with technically it's it really this is, is obviously a policy extremely issue. Yeah. political exactly but right. what the technical negotiators will do this week is hopefully to highlight and define clearly two or three options for the ministers to consult around and, and negotiate okay and the third element is uh the last one um that has been very contentious is uh what to do with the the transition from the old regime of Kyoto uh, and the, the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement and especially what to do with uh, CDM projects that have been registered right. in the past and CERs that have been emitted uh, pre-2020. Um, so the very different views on that and the, the key uh, challenge here is on the one hand some say well we need to uh, continue giving a, s a signal to the investors that uh, develop these projects and are counting to some extent on the carbon revenues from the sale of CRs over into the 2020s. Um, and others say, well, there's such a large volume of CRs that have not been purchased or CDM projects that have not actually yet claimed the CRs that um, this actually could undermine the ambition of the Paris Agreement if those CRs could be used towards an NDC by, right, by right. 2030. Um, so that is another very hotly debated issue that uh, will need to be resolved probably at the at a political level as well. Okay. One of the things that, that is important to say, you need to categorize the different types of projects, right? Some of them are much more vulnerable to and dependent on the carbon financing than others. So we can expect that some of the projects would actually continue operating, would continue delivering the mitigation right, results right. that they're, uh, through their operations without further carbon finance, right? So. Um, Part of the solution is to identify those projects that really depend on the carbon finance to continue operating into the, the Paris right. period. Because then you're really paying, because that's the additionality, then you're really paying for a reduction. Then you're paying for an actual yeah. result, exactly. Not undermining the ambition of Paris, but if you're actually allowing and that have shown that kept they kept operating for without securing the carbon finance, then uh, that, that poses a question of integrity for sure for, mm -hmm. for Paris. One of the key things that people don't understand about carbon finance or how the business model works is if the results already happen, what am I paying for? So it's this idea of I should be financing 
new emission reductions. But what they, and so if it's already happened, then why should you? But it's a misunderstanding of what the business model is. Someone is taking a risk that's, I'm going to do a kind of mitigation activity. I am going to take the upfront cost of the technologies. I'm going to work with, if it's working with communities, I'm going to do the training for the communities. I'm going to set up the systems that comply to a specific carbon standards requirements. So I'm going to take all that upfront cost of not only implementing the mitigation, designing the mitigation activity, getting it registered through all the processes for the carbon standard, and then I'm going to implement it. And I'm going to take on the upfront financing for that with the idea that, and end the implementation costs, so all those costs are brought together with the idea that I will be repaid back by the credit. And so it's incredibly important. So what carbon finance does is that the importance of it is you're rewarding, it's impact financing, I think, at its best because it has clear governance that's separate. It's not me as the person who's implementing saying, oh, this is my impact, and with without any third-party certification, it's with very clear measurement processes in place um, and very clear oversight in actually verifying it. So it's impact financing in its best, but then it is after the effect, so it's ex post verification. So what the person is, the carbon finance model is, you have to sell all the credits. The idea is if you were to sell every credit from each year, throughout the crediting period, that carbon finance, that sale of that credit goes towards recouping the upfront investments, but then also the operational costs. Now, if you have a credit from a project that's no longer operating, then you're right. There's a question on really, will that finance matter? And we would say no you should be buying credits from projects that are operating, so within their crediting period. And other, and so those are some of the key things in thinking about a very misunderstanding about how carbon yeah. finance as a business model works and the need for selling, buying credits for projects that are still operating. And at the same time, if they do go under, it's not just them, it's that the whole project could backslide. Yeah. And I know projects in Brazil where if these projects fail, smallholders will lose Illegal logging will resume in certain places. You know, there's so much there's so much at stake that they're. And you're absolutely right because so many communities are expecting to be paid for yeah. their efforts, and if it doesn't happen, yeah, and the payments don't come in time and things like that, it really burns them because they said yeah. we've done all this effort, and so then what happens is the next time someone else comes exactly. to propose the same thing, they refuse to do it, and so there's a, on, like really from our experience on the ground is that you really need to work with communities. You do have to set expectations that this is based on the sale of credits and yeah. this is the ways in which we're trying to make sure that we can sell credits in such a way to buyers and you can get the revenues. But it, it, it does have an institutional, like a, a memory effect and yeah. trust effect as well. I just want to re recall how central the, the Article 6 and these market mechanisms are to the, to the Paris Agreement. I mean, in mm -hmm. Paris, parties recognize that uh, cooperation between parties uh, was a, a means to actually increase ambition and to actually uh, deliver on the uh, objectives of the of the Paris Agreement. And it recognized that some countries were actually already cooperating. There were mm -hmm. there were already trades between Quebec and California yeah. across the Canadian American border uh, before Paris that need to be accounted for under under the Paris Agreement. So parties saw the value of cooperating before Paris. So if there's no agreement here, uh, the countries will continue. Uh, experimenting and, and exploring how to do yeah, deliver on their it, yeah. NDCs better together. Yeah. Um, and But that would be extremely unfortunate. And the business community, the investors, the governments to engage on this would be 
clearly benefit from clear rules so that we can actually deploy the billions that are that are expected through climate finance. And Fred would know this much better, but like the amount of technicalities in the negotiations between Quebec and California just to harmonize the systems to be able to do these trades, it takes a lot of time. It really requires technical experts to think through things and you will never always know all the issues. So either we learn from Article 6, the 6.2 mechanism or the 6.4 mechanism, okay, this is what's really needed in order to allow those kind of linkages between different carbon pricing systems to occur or NDCs to occur, or we learn from California and Quebec. And it, but it is helpful to have these frameworks in place because the amount learning on the go is for those pioneers like California and Quebec and for everyone else, if they wanted to create something, it's better to have that set up. Maria Carvalho closing out this edition of Bionic Planet together with Frederic Agnon Lebrun, both of South Pole Climate Solutions. I hope to have a few more episodes out before these talks are done, as well as a few more climate quickies. I got really good feedback on yesterday's. This episode will have a part two, by the way, which takes a deeper look into the Article 6 mechanisms themselves. Again, if you want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash bionic planet. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Glasgow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.